kingdom of Jesus is often very different from our world and the way that it normally operates. What looks like tragedy in the world is often actually triumph in Jesus' kingdom. What looks like failure in the eyes of the world very often is actually faithfulness in Jesus' kingdom. The pinnacle of this was in the death of Jesus Christ. As Jesus dies on a cross, it looked like a pitiful failure, an end to a movement perhaps that sat into a great life of a unique teacher. So for a while, looked like a devastating tragedy. When in fact, what looked like tragedy through the resurrection of Christ was actually the ultimate triumph, the picture of faithfulness and of grace. And today in our passage, we'll see another example of the upside down nature of Jesus' kingdom. Very different views of faithfulness and failure, of tragedy and of triumph. And we'll see how we can live in light of that today. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, to Matthew 14. Today we're in Matthew 14, beginning in verse 1. And the Bible's near you, you can find it on page 820. Page 820. I encourage you to open up a Bible app or open up a Bible just so you can see the text in front of you today, so you can see exactly where I'm drawing these thoughts from. Uh, when you open up the Bible, if you're newer to reading the Bible, the larger numbers are the chapter numbers. Uh, so we're in chapter 14, the smaller numbers, the verse numbers. I'll mention verse 1. I mention those throughout our time together. And if you don't own a copy of the Bible, we as a church would love to give you one today as a gift. At the back of the room, there's a table, a sign that says free Bibles. Please, following the service, grab one of those, take it with you. You don't have to ask permission from anyone. Please take it with you this morning. So we're continuing our series in the Gospel of Matthew today, Matthew 14, beginning in verse 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent, had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. Today in our passage, we'll see this emphasis. Be careful of the path of sinful choices and embrace the path of faithfulness. Be careful of the path of sinful choices and embrace the path of faithfulness. So look at our passage in three parts. So first, we'll see the weight of guilt. Second, the path of sin. And then third, the way of faithfulness. 
So first, we see the weight of guilt in verses 1 and 2. In verse 1, we see this man, Herod the Tetrarch. Now, his name was Herod Antipas. He was the son of one we referred to historically as Herod the Great. We met Herod the Great earlier in Matthew. After Jesus was born, Herod was threatened by this one who has been born, perhaps this one who was kingly. And so Herod the Great had many uh, child children who were boys killed. But then eventually, Herod the Great dies, and his region is divided up into parts. And so Herod Antipas was his son called a tetrarch. A tetrarch refers to one-fourth. So the area had been divided up, and so Herod Antipas has a portion of this. Now, Herod Antipas governed uh, Galilee and Perea, but not Judea, from 4 B.C. until 39 A.D. At times, Herod here is referred to as a king, though technically he was not a king, but more of a governor. But, but sometimes that term was used for him in history as well. And we see in our text that Herod heard about the fame of Jesus. The word reached Herod of the teaching of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus, the growing crowds following Jesus, the, perhaps the controversy also that's coming up around Jesus. And so what would Herod make of what he's hearing about Jesus? Look down at verse 2. Herod said, this is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous signs are at work in him. So Herod hears the popularity of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus, and his first thought is, it's someone who's been raised from the dead, and in particular, it's John the Baptist. Now, of all people, why did Herod think it was John the Baptist? There are other people in history he might have thought, why not Moses? Or why not Elijah, this, this great key prophet? Why John? Well, before we get to why he's thinking of John, let's, let's review who John the Baptist was. We met him earlier in this gospel in, in Matthew chapter 3. Uh, John the Baptist was the cousin of Jesus who played this important role uh, predicted by God in, in the Old Testament. There would be this one who would go before, a forerunner, preparing the way for the promised one, the Messiah. So John had, had come preaching, preaching a message of repentance, and actually became very popular. Huge crowds went out into the wilderness to hear John preached. And John was baptizing, a, a baptism for the repentance of sins. And just as Jesus was beginning his earthly ministry, Jesus went out to John, and Jesus also was baptized by John. But then the scene shifts in this gospel, and just in the actions of the world, John recedes from the spotlight as Jesus now had center stage. We saw John later in this gospel in Matthew 11, where John was now in prison. But what had made Herod in particular think of all people who might have been raised from the dead, who were doing these great miracles, why did Herod think it was John the Baptist? Well, the reason that Herod thought this is because Herod had a guilty conscience. We'll see the source of his guilty conscience in a moment. But Herod's conscience was heavy upon him. In fact, it seems that his conscience is haunting him. It even leads him to a conclusion that this seems to be irrational. He's saying, this one is someone who's been raised from the dead. That's quite a statement to be made. So this conscience of Herod 
weighs him and drives him. And I wonder if you've ever felt the weight of a guilty conscience. You found the, the pressure within. Maybe even haunting you, it seems. Maybe you're able to ignore it most of the time, but maybe late at night as you lie in bed, in moments of, the few moments of quiet in life, you feel the weight of guilt. But then second, we see the path of sin in verses 3 through 11. The path of sin. So we ask, well, so he thinks John the Baptist has risen. Clearly John the Baptist has died. So what happened to John? How did John die? We see verse 3. Herod had seized John, bound him, and put him in prison. Now these are significant actions. I mean, Herod sent some people to grab John, bind him up, throw him in prison. So it seemed that whatever John the Baptist had done must have been quite serious for him to sort of call out his version of the SWAT team to go bring him in. So what had John done? Had John been stirring up an insurrection of some sort? Had John himself tried to kill Herod? No. What caused John to be bound and thrown in prison was simply this. John had been criticizing Herod's choices, in particular, about taking a woman who was his brother's wife as his own wife. He critiqued Herod's actions, as we see in verse 3 and verse 4. Herod Antipas, our Herod here, had been married. But at some point, he begins to pursue his brother's wife. His brother's name was Herod Philip. So it gets confusing here. Follow along. Herod Antipas, his brother Herod Philip. Herod Philip was married to a woman, Herodias. Herodias was actually Herod Philip's niece, but he married her. They had a daughter, we'll see in our text, named Salome. Well, Herod Antipas becomes interested and begins to pursue his brother's wife. Evidently, by our text, she's interested as well. So Herod Antipas abandons his wife, divorces his wife, and then takes his brother's wife in marriage. It's hard to follow these various Herods and who's who. And John the Baptist had spoken publicly against this, saying, it's not lawful for you to have her, meaning it's not lawful for, for you to take your brother's wife, which actually is not a huge moral statement. I mean, it's not, it's not a massive leap to say, this is not right. And that's what John was doing. John was saying, this is not appropriate, simply calling him to God's law. Now, often in that day, if you wanted to govern a region, you would try to follow the general laws of that people so that they would be agreeable to your authority. And so it makes sense, typically, for Herod to try to follow most of the Jewish law, simply to try to keep them in his place. And so, so John the Baptist is saying, well, well, why don't you follow that? She's your brother's wife. Why are you taking her as your wife. Obviously, John the Baptist did not like this critique, nor did Herodias, so he had John arrested and thrown in prison. Now, Herod himself seems to be somewhat conflicted about what to do with John. The Gospel of Mark, we have this account, Mark 6, 19 to 20. Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. 
It's a really interesting description. She's saying, kill him. He's afraid of him because he says, I can tell this man is righteous. He's, he's holy. And Herod strangely is perplexed when he listens, but also listens somewhat gladly to the teaching of John. It's as if he loved and he hated to listen to John. He was intrigued by John, but also offended by him. And we see in our passage, verse 5, And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. So so the, the, the locals thought highly of John. He'd been such a popular teacher. So it's one thing to have him in prison, but if you kill him, it might have stirred up the locals as well. So we see the conflicted thoughts that Herod seemed to have. He wanted to put him to death and and silence him. But he also knew the people favored him. And though John critiqued Herod, somehow Herod liked some of what he heard. He was intrigued to some extent of the, the righteousness, the apparent truth that John taught. We should see here that simply enjoying sermons isn't sufficient. But there have been people throughout history who've been intrigued by sermons, who love to hear preachers and yet have never come to a real saving faith themselves. So be careful, friend, of just thinking listening is enough. It's good. It's a start. But only hearing and selectively hearing as Herod was is not sufficient for our deepest need. All this culminated on Herod's birthday, as we see in verses 6 through 11. There was a a great feast and celebration. He apparently threw for himself. (laughs) He's throwing a big party for himself. He invites a lot of people. It's this great feast, typically of of men eating and drinking, being intoxicated. And sometimes dancers would come as well. In our text, we're told that Herod's stepdaughter, so Herodias' daughter she already had, for some reason she comes and dances before these intoxicated men. And she gains their favor through her dance. And so Herod, seeking to impress these who were at the party, promises an oath and says to her, I'll give you whatever you ask. We're not sure of her age, but she's not sure what to ask for. So she goes and asks her mom, what should I ask for? I would assume in her mind, if she would imagine a hundred things she might ask for, it's not what her mom will say. But her mom says, here's what you should ask for. Go and ask for John the Baptist's head on a platter. I mean, in my mind, she's thinking like, what? But she does it. She goes to Herod, communicates it, and Herod is trapped. He's regretful, our text tells us. He's sorry for his oaths, but he's also afraid of the opinions of others. He acted so proud, so boastful, but now he can't back up. And so we see that John was beheaded. His head was brought on a platter to the girl and then to her mother. What a horribly gruesome action. I mean, it's shocking simply to read it today. But these horrible actions that brought this in just didn't come out of nowhere for Herod. Now, there was a path of many smaller, sinful choices that 
led Herod down the path that culminated in the depths of this horrific action. It started much earlier as he began to lust after his brother's wife. Herod Philip's wife, he's, he's lusting after her. So he then eventually brings her, this, his brother's wife, into an adulterous relationship with him. He chooses to abandon his own wife, divorce her. This eventually leads him to wrongly, unjustly imprison John. We see this growing lust for power in Herod. He's driven to impress others. He clearly lacks self-control. He makes this promise. He regrets it. He doesn't have the courage not to follow through on his promise. So then he unjustly kills John silences him. One seemingly small sin that leads to another. That leads to another. That spirals down further and further and further. You and I may think that we would never consider beheading someone. I'm sure that you wouldn't. But how easy it is for us, like Herod, to make Seemingly small sinful choices that leads to another sinful choice, that leads to another sinful choice, that leads us down this spiral deeper and deeper and deeper. I wonder how you might have seen this play out in your life. Perhaps at work there was a, a project that had to be completed and you didn't get it done on time. So you had to lie to cover for why you didn't complete it. But then you discovered, it, actually, you're going to have to lie again to cover up the lie. But then it looks like maybe that's not sufficient, so now you need to bring down a coworker. Let them be the one that this falls on. And so now you begin to, to start a, gossiping about this coworker or lying about the coworker. And one leads to another, leads to another. All from one initial sin. Now, in our passage, we see that sexual sin is the heart of the beginning of this path for Herod. A sexual temptation is not at all the only temptation that you and I will face, but, but we shouldn't be naive. Sexual temptation is powerful. And so often we see destructive realities in people's lives as they wander down this path of sexual sin. It shows up so often in the downward spiral of pornography. It first starts with this growing desire. And then just a quick glance. It leads to returning in a longer glance. So it leads to planning ways to get more access. Which leads to lying to roommates or to a spouse. It spirals down. Friends, adulterous affairs don't just happen. A person does not just one day think, I want to go and commit adultery. No, it starts way back here. It's a series of increasingly significant sinful choices that spiral down and down and down. And friends, I'm sure if you're honest, you could think back in your own life of times when you've known that path and that spiral downward further and further. And friend, maybe if you're honest, today you know that you're on that path. Maybe relatively early in the path of sinful choices or maybe 
you know you've spiraled deep. You never planned to get there. You couldn't have imagined that you are where you are, but one sinful choice has led to another and to another. And friends, that's why we must be on guard for all sorts of sin. Because it happens so easily and so quickly. And friends, once we find ourselves walking down this path, we often find ourselves not only on the path, but the path is often foggy. We don't see clearly. We can't now think clear. And so we're wandering and stumbling further and further down and down the spiral. The fog becomes thicker and thicker as we go. And friend, if you are today on step one of the downward spiral, friend, let me encourage you today to repent. It's never too soon to turn back to repent. Or maybe if you're honest, you're, you're way down the path. You're deep in the spiral. The fog of sin is thick. Friends, the good news is it's never too late to turn back. So repent today. Turn back today. And friends, because of the temptation to, to start down this path, because we can so easily mislead ourselves, because of the power of sin and because of the reality of this fog that overcomes us, friends, that's one of the many reasons we need other Christians in our lives. That's why we need a local church of, of others who, who know the power of sin, but also the grace of Christ and who are willing to look out for one another in this. Because the fact is, friends, when we're on this path going down, we need some people who will love us enough to come looking for us. And, and if you're wandering in the fog, you need someone to come searching for you, even if in the moment you don't want them to search. And that's one of the reasons that church membership is so, I think, vital to the Christian. Because we commit to each other on a day when it's sunny and clear. We say to one another, if I were ever to wander in sin, and I know I could do that, so if I'm wandering in sin, if I'm in the fog of sin, would you commit church to come looking for me? And as a church member, you commit that to other members. If they're in the fog of sin, I commit to go looking for you. But we need to commit when we're not in the fog so that when we are in the fog and we say, I don't want someone to come looking for me, there's some people committed to us. And friend, if you're new to the city this fall, we're so glad that you're here. We're so sorry it's getting cold, but it will get worse in the days ahead. But if you're a Christian, let me encourage you while you're in the city, look intentionally for a church. Find a church, though. Put down roots in a church for the sake of your own soul. Because whether you're here for a year or five years or the next 25 years, all of us struggle with sin. All of us are prone to wander. So we need some people who would love us enough, be committed to us enough to come looking for us. And friends, there are people who need you to come looking for them. So it goes both ways in the covenant of the church. Herod wanted to silence John. He ultimately did not want to hear his words of critique. He, he didn't want to be confronted. 
His conscience was making him uncomfortable. Herodias' conscience was making her uncomfortable. So together, they finally decide we must silence John. Friends, when we're struggling with sin, when our conscience is marked with the weight of guilt, it's a great temptation for us to silence God's word for us. Of course, we never think, I want to behead God's spokesman. But, but there are other ways, friends, that we'd say, I don't want to hear God's word. So the temptation is to pull back from God's word, reading it yourself, to pull back from God's people in the local church, to no longer listen. And over time, the more we wander in sin, the more we want to silence God's word. And sometimes instead of trying to fully silence God's word, sometimes we want to reinterpret God's word. So there might be a place where God's word speaks to a choice that you are making or that you now want to make. And you understand actually God's word speaks against that. And so you try to find, can I find someone, some teacher, some author, some preacher who will condone what I'm already doing or what I want to do? Even though deep down you would say, I actually know that's not what God's word says, but I want someone to justify my actions. I want someone to give me permission, even though just a few years ago you would have never said that's what God's word says. And so we begin to silence God's word or want to have God's word changed. So, friend, I wonder are there ways that you're currently trying to silence God's word in your life? Otherwise, you're trying to reinterpret God's word to, to justify some choices or some actions that you want to make or that you've already begun to make. For it can be so very tempting, but it's tremendously dangerous for our souls. So we see the path of sin. And then third, we see the way of faithfulness. The way of faithfulness in verse 12. So as we saw, John the Baptist was brutally put to death. And then look at verse 12. It says, And his disciples came and took the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. So John is dead. And John's disciples come. And notice it says they took the body. They didn't come and take John. That's not the Christian view. For that dead body, that's not John anymore. That's his body. That is true. A body that will one day be recreated, resurrected with a new form. But for now, that's only the body that was buried. For John is not there. The Christian view, we understand that upon his death, John was immediately in heaven with God. We'll live forever with God as all Christians will. And a day is coming then when we will have these remade bodies. John's body will be drawn up out of the grave and renewed. John the Baptist had come to prepare the way of Jesus, as I said. And here in death, John also goes before Jesus. Herod had wanted to silence John. Many eventually wanted to silence Jesus. The religious authorities wanted to silence him. Herod himself would be there at the end with Jesus, also signing off on his death. 
So eventually they would come with these false accusations against Jesus. So there are similarities with the death of John. There are also ways that Jesus' death was infinitely more significant than John's death. For Jesus' death on the cross, they're the sinless Son of God. Dying in the place of and for sinners like us is the very center of God's glorious plan to restore sinners. John had an important role, but Jesus is the center. And there, friends, Jesus died in our place. He was perfect, yet on the cross, he took our shame, our guilt, our sin, dying in our place, that we might be pardoned of all our sin. Jesus died a horrific death on a cross. And like John, some took his body down and placed it in a tomb. But Jesus, unlike John, was raised from the dead. On the third day, Jesus was raised. Herod had said, John the Baptist has been raised. He was wrong, but he was close. There was one coming soon, Jesus, who would be raised from the dead. And with that, friends, comes hope and salvation for us because Christ died and was raised. Friends, Jesus, the risen one, he is the true, perfect king. So different from Herod, the kingly pretender. Herod only sought to serve himself, to fulfill his own desires. Herod was insecure, captive of the opinions of others. Herod would kill John to cover up his own sin. But Jesus, the unique, true king, he came to serve, to serve others, not to be served. Jesus chose to allow himself to be killed to pay for the sins of others. Because there is no one like Jesus, the Savior and King. And if you're not a Christian, we so much want you to consider Jesus. We're glad that you would give part of your Sunday today to consider this. So we hope that you'll feel safe here to explore this over the weeks and months, maybe years to come. The salvation is held out as a free gift to any and all who would receive it by faith. And for maybe as you consider your own life, your conscience today feels heavy. Maybe you'd say you are weighed down by a guilty conscience. As Christians, we'd say our, our consciences are not perfect, but they can be a pointer. And often we would say we have a guilty conscience because we're often guilty. And so as we want you to know that the, the Christian way is not paying off your guilt, not earning your way out of your guilt, but that Jesus came, the one who had no guilt, to pay for our guilt so that we could be free from our guilt. We would love for you to consider Jesus. Maybe trust in him today by faith. If you want to know more, I'll be at the door. I'd love to chat with you afterwards. Or you could write on your Connect card, a variety of boxes you could check there. Or if you came with a friend or a classmate and they're a Christian, I know they would love to tell you more. For those of us who are Christians, we want to remember who we are now in Christ. For in Christ, you are forgiven and free. And now, by the power of the Spirit, you can make progress in this fight against sin. 
The Spirit in you will help you to, at times, flee sin or, when necessary, stand and fight against sin. My friend, if you're today wandering in sin, let me urge you, turn back to Christ today. And maybe it's been a long season of wandering. Maybe you've actually disconnected from God's people, not not attending a church regularly. Or maybe you've, you've been coming to church, so your body has been near, but actually your heart has been far. But you've been wandering, whether short or long. One, turn back to Christ today. Repent and know the the refreshment and joy that's found in Christ. But in particular, if you've been wandering for a while, let me encourage you to tell someone about that. It can be a helpful thing to invite another brother or sister in faith. This is where I've been. I need your help. We'd love to serve you. You could write that on your card. I would love to serve you and pray for you. If you've been wandering and it's... You can mark confidential. Nobody else will see it except from that. I would love to pray for you if God has been stirring you to return even today. We see in this text the sad end to John the Baptist's life. We might wonder, well, John was so faithful to Jesus, faithful to God. Why didn't God save John? Why wasn't John set free from prison? Why is such a sad, devastating end after suffering in prison? We might wonder, was this what we'll face as we follow Jesus? Is this what the future holds for us? We saw earlier in this gospel in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, in fact, we will face things like this. Matthew 5, 11 and 12, Jesus says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecute the prophets who were before you. So Jesus says, yes, this will often mark God's people. It's different from season of history to season of history, from nation to nation, from person to person. But we should not be shocked at this opposition. Across the history of God's people, we often see them facing opposition, suffering, even death. Around the world today, there are Christians dying for the name of Christ. That's true. Sometimes God's people are delivered miraculously. We see the Old Testament, Daniel, thrown into the lion's den. God preserves him, brings him out. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, thrown into a fiery furnace. God delivers them. They come out unscathed. Peter, in prison, God sets him free. Paul and Silas, in jail, God delivers them powerfully. So sometimes, yes, God intervenes miraculously and powerfully, and we give thanks for that miraculous deliverance. But very often, the faithful are not delivered in this life. Almost all the apostles were martyred for the name of Christ. In Hebrews chapter 11, verses 35 to 40, we see a description of just sort of this unnamed collection of God's people and what they face. Listen to what it says, Hebrews 11, 35. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, 
destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. So here's this unnamed collection of God's people facing horrific suffering. And notice what it says, of whom the world was not worthy. What a stunning thing of these who suffer for the name of Christ. So friends, for us as Christians, we will face at times suffering, opposition, sometimes persecution, even danger as we seek to faithfully follow Jesus. And in those circumstances, we we certainly pray for and hope for deliverance in this life, and, and sometimes that happens. I think especially as American Christians, we can tend to think that it's almost promised by God that you'll be delivered. That yes, we we may face some difficulty, they may be imprisoned, but we'll pray after a relatively short period of time, they'll be set free and we'll celebrate and they'll write a book and they'll go on a book tour recounting their deliverance. Friends, that's a wonderful thing and we celebrate when they're delivered. And I love to read the books of those who God has delivered. But friends, that's not promised to us. I think often our assumption that that will happen is more American than it is Christian. Faithfulness is often costly. To hold to Christ's way, to speak up against sin and injustice is often costly. John called sin what it was. It cost him his life. Friend, if you seek to be faithful where you are, it likely will be costly at some point. It might cost you a friendship. It could cost you a promotion. It might cost you your job. Perhaps for some of us, our physical safety, and even our lives. And so we might wonder, what's the goal in life? Our goal, friends, is faithfulness to the glory of God. So we want our lives to be faithful to the end for the glory of our King. And if you're like me, you might wonder, though, I don't know if I faced real danger, even death, that I would have the courage that I need to face it. And the fact is we wouldn't today because we don't need that courage today. But friend, have hope. If and when you face great persecution for the name of Christ, even danger and the loss of life, friend, Christ was faithful to the end. The Spirit dwells in you. The Holy Spirit dwells in every Christian, and he will give you what you need in the moment. The courage, the strength, the power, the faithfulness to endure, he will do that and he will keep you to the end. He will strengthen you and comfort you in that moment. There is a tragedy in our passage. It's actually not John the Baptist. The first reading we might think, yeah, it's John the Baptist. That's the tragic end. No, it's a sad end to John's life, but John was faithful. He dies and he gains. The tragedy was Herod. He was so near to God's word. He heard 
numerous times. And yet, tragically, in time, he closed himself off to God's word. That is the tragedy. John's life and death were marked by faithfulness. Might have looked like failure in that world. But friends, faithfulness to Jesus is never failure. We must measure faithfulness not by what happens in this life or by how our life ends. Friends, your faithfulness will never be wasted. No matter what the world may see or say, God is glorified in your faithfulness to him. We have a broader view because our hope is eternal. Our hope is greater because of Christ. The fact is the worst that can happen to you in this life is they can kill your body. And if you do, you gain Christ. So that reshapes our view on suffering and death and faithfulness. On February 15th, 2015, ISIS released a video that you probably at least saw a news story about where 21 Egyptian Coptic Christians were put to death on a beach. They were Egyptian construction workers who had been working in Libya, captured by ISIS. ISIS had taken them onto a beach. They were all wearing orange jumpsuits, kneeling down, and these men in black suits and large swords beheaded And ISIS shared this video trying to communicate a message of power and superiority, of of triumph over the tragedy of these lives lost. The goal was to strike fear, to make clear who was winning. But in fact, the winning and losing was very different from a kingdom perspective. Egyptian Archbishop Angelos, after five years, was interviewed, reflecting upon this five years later. And he talked of how Egyptian Christians have often faced persecution. What these faced was not new to them. He said this in the interview. The interesting thing is, we live with a sense of resilience. But we've never fallen into a state of victimhood or triumphalism. We realize that it is the cross of Christ. It's not the end of the road because there is a resurrection that comes after the cross and the empty tomb. And so it is in that hope that we continue to live. And it's in that hope that we continue to carry that cross knowing that it will be removed from us. This is the outlook for God's people, for us. Neither victimhood nor triumphalism but instead enduring hope, seeking to live faithfully. We will face opposition at times. We will face suffering, even death. And we simply seek to finish well, to finish faithfully. And friends, by God's grace and with his strength within you, you will finish well. He will keep you to the end He will empower you to faithfully finish. That's good news 